0: Be seated. Well, let's uh, pray once more and, and seek God's blessing on His Word. Will you pray with me again? Our Father in heaven, we do pray now as we come to study Your Word that You would be our teacher, that You would be our helper, that again, Lord, we ask that our eyes would be set upon You and that You would prepare our hearts to hear Your Word, Lord, that we would grow in our love for you and love for your gospel. And we do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please turn with me to Mark chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at verse 13 to 17. Mark chapter 12 and verse 13 to 17. And we've, in the evenings, been looking through a series of living for Christ in difficult days and I, I trust that our studies in the evening have been helpful as we look through Scripture to see themes and tools to equip us and help us to live for Christ in these difficult days. Now, this evening we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12 and verse 13 to 17. And I want to begin again by reading our text and, and focusing on it. Our Lord Jesus among the Pharisees and Herodians verse 13 of Mark 12, the text says, And they sent to him, that is Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, And to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They they marveled at him. Now, as we consider this text, I want to say four words to you as we begin. Four important words that pop out of this text Jesus Christ is worthy, He's worthy of our entire lives, He's worthy of our entire devotion. He's worthy of our entire worship. He's worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Our Lord says in Isaiah that he alone is God and there is no other. And we'll see this throughout this text. As we walk through it, we'll see that Jesus Christ alone is the one who is worthy of all praise and worship. And to do that, I want us to see two things this evening, I want you to see in verse 13 to verse 14, which will set the context. I want you to see first the folly of putting King Jesus to the test. That's what we're going to see here in our first point in verse 13 to verse 14. As we set the stage to this passage to verse 17, I want you to see the folly of putting Jesus Christ to the test. You see here in verse 13, there's the Pharisees and the Herodians who uh, were sent to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were sent for a specific purpose. They weren't coming to Jesus Christ to worship Him and to bow down and, and give Him the praise and honor that's due to His name. They weren't coming for that purpose. Again and again throughout the Gospels, we see the religious leaders and the elites of society, they're constantly attacking the ministry of Jesus Christ. If you notice back in verse 12 of Mark 12, they wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted him to be arrested. Notice verse 12. The crowd, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So they've sought to arrest Jesus Christ. The crowd has gone away. They failed to do that. But notice in verse 13, there's a new scheme. There's a new tactic. They want to trap Jesus. They want to force him into a corner and allow him to stumble and to fall and to get tongue tied and caught up in his own words. And so you notice in verse 13, the text says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They weren't coming to worship Christ, but they were coming to try and trap Christ. To trap him in his talk. Now it's important to know these two characters. Who's a Pharisee and who's a Herodian? Well, the Pharisee was a devout Jew, they were a leader in Jewish society. So you have a devout Jew, a leader of the Jews, and you have a Herodian who was a pagan. The Herodians were fully devoted to the Roman Empire. So you have the Jews and you have someone coming from the Roman Empire and they're both coming with one purpose in mind to trap Jesus Christ, to trip Him in His talk. And you notice in verse 14 these sly words. They bring a question before Christ. And this question is to trap Him. Notice in verse 14. And they came and said to Him, Teacher, teacher, We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Well, Jesus, in a moment, He'll see right through that. We'll see that. He'll see their hypocrisy. They're not not bowing down and saying that He's the one who's teaching the way of God. They don't have this genuineness of heart. They're simply saying these sly words, these hypocritical words to Jesus to trap Him. And so you notice the question they bring before him. This is their tactic. They bring this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, the question here is simple. As you read that text in verse 17, it's either, do we pay taxes to Caesar or do we not pay taxes to Caesar? Now, the question is, you're probably wondering, why would they use that question to trap Jesus or to cause him to stumble in his speech? Why would they mention about paying taxes to Caesar? Do we pay taxes to him or do we not? How how would that trap him? Well, I want you to notice again the context. These two characters back in verse 13, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Well, let's begin with the Pharisees. In first century Judaism, uh, the Jews didn't embrace Roman rule well they understood that the coin had Caesar's image on it. And so for them, they were very reluctant to pay taxes. They, they believed uh, that because the coin had Caesar's image, as they would pay taxes to the Roman Empire, they, they saw it as a form of idolatry. So you understand the Pharisee coming to Jesus and saying, do we pay taxes or do we not pay taxes to Caesar? If Jesus simply answered to the Pharisee, yes, you must pay taxes to Caesar, what would take place is that the Jews would be absolutely furious with him. So you see, the Pharisees, they asked this question to get a crowd roused against Jesus, a crowd to be angry and furious with Jesus by their answer. If he said, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, the second group, the Herodians, you can see here that they came to ask him the same question with the Pharisees. But, but they were looking for a different response. If Jesus said, do not pay taxes to Caesar, the Herodians are a part of the Roman Empire. They're, they're, devout, they're devoted to the Roman Empire. So if Jesus says, do not pay taxes to Caesar then these people, the Herodians, are going to be furious. So really, you can see here right through uh, this question, it was an attempt to trap Jesus. They anticipated either a yes or a no. Yes, we pay taxes to Caesar, or no, we do not pay taxes to Caesar. And regardless These men thought that there would be a crowd that would be furious against Christ. There would be people that wanted to stone him again or throw him in prison. So there was this tactic to to try and make him stumble, uh, to try and trip him. But we see again and again and again, that's a foolish thing. It's, It's a foolish thing to try and put King Jesus to the test. It never works out. It never works out to put the King of kings and Lord of lords to the test. Isaiah 55, verse 8 to 9. The Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, uh, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, for us as believers maybe we wouldn't outright think that we could put christ to the test but But there can be this form of doubt in our life where we doubt his goodness or we doubt his promises or we doubt his words. But we see here that the Lord, the the King of kings and the Lord of lords, uh, he can't be put to the test. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. So as his people, when we hear the, the call of the king, when we sit under the king's word, which is the word of God, the Bible... We realize that when the king speaks, we listen, we submit. When the Bible speaks, it is God speaking. And what these men fail to do is to truly listen to the voice of the king, to truly bow down and worship the king, to take heed to his word and to apply it. And so for us, when we consider the folly of these Pharisees and Herodians, But we think of the foolishness of trying to put Christ to the test and not bowing down and simply listening to what the king has to say. That's a foolish thing. And that leads into our second point. Now that we see the folly of putting King Jesus to the test, I want you to see how Christ deals with this folly. I want you to see how he addresses them and he actually takes the opportunity to teach them and to teach them in a way that they were not expecting. They were expecting a yes or no answer. But he takes the opportunity to teach them. So secondly, the wisdom of the king. And we're going to see that in verse uh, verse 15 to verse 17. The wisdom of the king. If you notice in verse 15... How does Jesus respond to their question? Notice, verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he saw right through it. He said to them, why put me to the test? It's folly to put the king to the test. You'll see this. Bring me a denarius, he said, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, "Caesars." So he does something here. The, the wisdom of the king. Notice how he addresses them. He says, "Bring me this denarius, th- this coin, a uh, coin in the Roman Empire." And he he took it out and he said, "Look at it." He, he brings it before the Pharisee and the Herodians, and he's teaching them something. He says, "Whose likeness and inscription is this?" And they said, "Caesar." So. Caesar's inscription, his likeness, his image was was placed upon this coin, this denarius, which was a day's wage, a day's work of labor. And church history tells us that it would have had the image of the ruling Caesar of the day. And in Christ's day, as he would have picked up this coin, the inscription on that coin, as commentators have pointed out, it would have said Tiberius Caesar Augustus, the name of the Caesar. Iberius, Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, Pontiff Maxim, highest priest. And so you see there right away on the coin, it says that Caesar Augustus is the son of the divine Augustus. They're, they're ascribing divinity to Caesar. The Pontiff Maxim, the highest priest. So on one side of the coin, there would be the head of the ruler, head Caesar On the other side of the coin there would be a picture of him seated on a throne wearing diadems and clothed in this high priestly robe. A common confession of the Roman Empire was that Caesar is Lord. And so the Christians of this day in the early church, they would have heard this confession coming out of the Roman Empire Caesar is Lord, and they would have proclaimed that Caesar is the only sovereign in the world. That Caesar is the only one who has authority over every aspect of your life. And by the word Lord, they ascribe divinity to Caesar. Now, how does that work out in the kingdom of God? Is Caesar Lord? What is Jesus showing them here? He brings this coin before them and shows them that this coin has a Caesar on it. It has his image on it. It has their false god the caesar lord if you look with me in philippians chapter 2 we see the confession of the early church the confession of the apostles i want you to notice in philippians chapter 2 in verse 9 to 11 the confession of the early church it was radical paul says in verse 9 of philippians 2 speaking of the exaltation of Jesus Christ, "...therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him, as Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name." Now, in the Roman Empire, that's a scandalous thing to say, to say that the crucified one, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, He has this name that is above every name." Uh, the Roman Empire would have said, Caesar has that name above every name. But he's the Father, highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Notice verse 10 so that at the name of Jesus, not at the name of Caesar, but at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That was something radical. The Roman Empire would have said, Caesar is Lord. But Paul says, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To say Caesar is Lord, the early church would have realized that's idolatry. They're ascribing Caesar as God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the only sovereign. He's the one with supreme authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. He's seated at the Father's right hand, this highly exalted place. The Pharisees, the Herodians, they saw the coin. They saw Caesar's image. Notice again what Jesus says in verse 17. He's addressing this issue. He's giving us a framework to see And to know how to deal and how to live in this world. He says in verse 17, after showing them this coin with Caesar's image on it. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They, they were astonished. This was something radical. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, I want you to notice two things from verse 17. I hope it's helpful for us. There, Jesus gives us this framework on how we live in this world with various spheres. Two things. Notice first in verse 17, again, the coin has Caesar's image. And Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's the first statement. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, Jesus is showing us here clearly in verse 17 that Caesar, the state, the magistrates, they do have a legitimate sphere of authority to operate in under God's authority. They have this jurisdiction that God has given them to operate and to function for God's purposes. William Hendrickson says about this text, Jesus was not evading the issue, in verse 17, but was clearly saying to them, yes, pay the taxes to Caesar. Honoring God does not mean dishonoring the emperor by refusing to pay for the privileges of an orderly society. The emperor should be paid and given back to him only what is his due. And in this context, he's referring to taxes. So Jesus Jesus says, yes, Pay taxes. Submit to to Caesar in this way by paying taxes. We know in Romans thirteen verse one to seven, he, Paul brings up submitting to the government again by paying taxes. But also in verse uh, one to five in First Peter two to fourteen, he also says there's this other sphere that God has ordained for the government, not only. Uh, for taxes purposes, but also to punish. To punish evil, Peter says. To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. To, To bear the sword on the wicked, to be God's avenger or his, the one who pours out God's wrath in that sense. And we praise God that there's an institution, the state, to bear the sword on wickedness. When, when someone sheds the blood of another, there's a penalty by the state. That's God's sphere that he's given the, the state. Taxes to bear the sword, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So he says he has a legitimate sphere Caesar, the state, has a legitimate sphere of authority that's been delegated to them by God. Glenn Sunshine, Dr. Glenn Sunshine, says another helpful thing. He says Jesus here was clear that his kingdom is not of this world, John 18, verse 36, and therefore that all his work was not just about political power. He also taught that we are to give to Caesar, i.e., the government, the things that are Caesar's, which means that Caesar really does have a legitimate claim on us. But then he says, At the same time, however, this claim is not all-encompassing. We are to give to God, not to Caesar, the things that belong to God. And then he says, he concludes, The government may not take on authority that properly belongs to God or by extension to his bride. So we see Jesus is establishing this sphere sovereignty that Caesar has a legitimate sphere to operate in, but it's only the sphere that God has delegated to him, the authority to bear the sword and to to praise that which is good and to uh, render taxes. R.C. Sproul says, Caesar, the government, has a designated place of authority, and Christians in this verse are told to submit to that authority by paying Their taxes. So Jesus begins there. He addresses the legitimacy of of rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And in this context, it is taxes. Now, what's the issue here? Well, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they are so consumed with this narrow focus of pleasing Caesar, rendering to Caesar. Uh, They're saying, Do we pay taxes to Caesar or do we not pay taxes to Caesar? And the issue behind this is that these men are standing before the living God. They're standing before the one who's upholding them with the power of his word, upholding all things. And these men do not bow down and worship Jesus Christ and give him the worship that's due to his name. But instead they're, they're focused on giving Caesar what Caesar wanted. So Jesus, he goes on. He rebukes them really and he shows them that they have forgotten the most important part, giving to God what God wants. He reminds them that they are owned by God and that is far greater and superior to all things. And so he he shows them this coin that you use to pay for taxes. It has Caesar's image on it. But what image do you have on you? Who, whose image do you bear? Who, whose image do you carry? You have the image of God. And so that's the second piece of the framework that Jesus shows us. The coin has Caesar's image on it. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay Caesar taxes. But he shows us something far greater. He says, you. He looks them in the eye. He says, give to God. Render to God the things that are God's. He's really showing us that you... As an image bearer of God, you have God's image and likeness stamped upon you. Give to God what is God's. In other words, the coin for tax purposes, give it a Caesar. You belong to God. The coin has Caesar's image on it, but you have God's image. You don't have Caesar's image on you, but you have God's image on you. The coin, give it a Caesar, but give your entire lives to Jesus Christ. The state Caesar does not own you, but God does. Bow down and worship Jesus Christ. You are his. You're to love the Lord your God with all of your mind and heart and soul and strength. You have the image of God stamped upon you. And that changes everything. That changes how you live in this world. That I'm accountable to the King of kings and Lord of lords. That I'm responsible to Him. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in His own image. Something far greater than a coin that has the image of Caesar on it. But man has been created in God's own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them give yourselves to god you have god's image upon you you are obligated to give yourself to him and and we don't just give ourselves to to the lord on sundays only and then the rest of the week we just give ourselves wholeheartedly to caesar but but give everything to the lord every day all day every hour on the lord's now let's look at some texts that but tell of us of this. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20. I want you to see that you are gods. Render to God the things that are gods. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. There's something far greater here. He says in verse 20. For you were bought at a price. What's that price that you were bought at? The blood of the Savior, the blood of the God-man, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You were bought with a price. You were bought out of the slave market of sin and death. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see that? Your body, your spirit, your entire being is God's. You've been made in this image. Render to God what is God's. You are his. Your allegiance is ultimately, before anything else, to your king. If you notice in Romans chapter 12, in verse 1, I want you to see what the Apostle Paul, again, reminds us of. Romans 12 In verse 1, that everything we do, it's all done in worship for the Lord. Romans 12, verse 1, we see the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Everything you do when you wake up Present yourself to the Lord. A living sacrifice. I live for King Jesus. Everything I do, it's for Him. That's my spiritual worship. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3 and onward. We live, Coram Deo, in the presence of God. We live for one focus. And that is the glory of God. Notice Paul doesn't say, wake up and live your day for for Caesar, but the focus of the New Testament is that you are God's. You have God's image upon you. Live first and primary for the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship Him. Romans fourteen. We won't turn there, but verse one to verse twelve, we see that Jesus tells us. We see that the Apostle Paul he says that we we see that Christ is the Lord of the conscience. And so in all areas, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He is both Lord over our bodies, our mind, our conscience, all of that. And R.C. Sproul, again, helpfully says, verse, on verse 17 in Mark 12, since Caesar has things that belong to him, so you see that, Jesus has said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, pay your taxes to Caesar." Caesar has things that belong to him. He has a sphere of, of authority to operate in, that authority that has been given from God, an authority that's accountable to God. Since Caesar has things that belong to him, Sproul says, it does not mean that he has a right to everything that he claims For himself. That's what Jesus is telling us. There's things that are Caesar's, but but there's things that are God's, and things that are God's encompass all things. He's above everything. Sproul says, Believers give to God the things that are God's, and what belongs to Him is supreme authority, even over the state. Thus the state is not permitted to overstep its bounds and intrude its matters, such as worship, such as the conscience, God has not delegated that to the state. And if you look with me in Colossians chapter 1, we see the Apostle Paul. He highlights this to us. Where does Christ's supremacy extend to? Where does his rule and authority extend to? We see that every other earthly authority, whether the state or the family or the individual, it's all under the authority of Christ. And he's given them this sphere to operate in under Christ's Lordship. And so you look with me in First in Corinthians chapter or sorry, Colossians chapter one and verse fifteen. Again, a very familiar text, a wonderful text. First Corinthians one verse fifteen, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's why Sproul can say that his authority is higher than even Caesar's authority, though Caesar has a sphere to operate in. But it's above all things. All things were created for Christ, through him and for him. Notice verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Paul, he covers all areas again. He's preeminent over Caesar, the state, whether thrones on, on earth, dominions, powers, all of these things. He's above it. They've been created through him and for him. He's above All things. He's the head of the church. There's these spheres that God has delegated. That God has given them a limited authority to operate in for the ultimate purpose of His glory and His praise. And so we see then the wisdom of this king. He's showing us something. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. Now let's go one step further. We've considered the folly of putting King Jesus to the test, the wisdom of the king. Now let's think of this in terms of implication or application from verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. How can we take this framework of these spheres and apply it to how we live in this world? How can we live for Jesus Christ in difficult times? Days or in good days, in old days. Well, a couple of weeks ago we looked at this concept, which I believe is in the scriptures of sphere sovereignty, and this concept helps us clarify that there's different jurisdictions of earthly authorities that the Lord has given. These jurisdictions, these spheres, they don't have unlimited authority. They don't have ultimate authority. They've been given authority from The living God, he has supreme authority and rule. So each sphere, they have this limited authority given by God to operate in. Each sphere does not have authority over the other sphere, but they are to operate within their own jurisdiction, within their own God-given bounds. And so we saw four spheres a couple weeks ago. I'll go through them briefly. The individual, again, we saw in Genesis 1, verse 27, that... That men and women have been created by God. They've been made in His image. Every person in this world is accountable to God, responsible to God, and they have liberty to God, and it is all under the lordship of the sovereign one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have that sphere. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of the conscience. I'm accountable to the Lord and how I steward my time and my resources in my life in accordance with the instruction from the Word of God by the Spirit's help. So there's, there's that sphere. We're accountable to God. There's also the sphere of the family. And for time's sake, we won't go through it all, but we saw a couple weeks ago that in Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6, there's the husband, there's the wife, there's the children, and we see that that each one in the family unit is ultimately responsible to Jesus Christ. And so... The husband is to lead and love his wife in a way that is Christ-like and tender and according to the Word of God. And you see again and again as Paul refers to husbands, he says, Love them as Christ loves the church. Love them, serve them, lead them as unto the Lord. The husband doesn't have supreme authority over his wife or his family. It's ultimately Christ. There's this limited authority that he's been given in the family. We saw the wife... She's to joyfully submit to her husband as he leads her unto the Lord. And her accountability ultimately is to the Lord. And so if her husband requires her to do something against her conscience or against Scripture, she is not required to submit, but she submits as unto the Lord. Children are supposed to uh, uh, be responsible and respect their parents as unto the Lord. We see again and again, it's all unto the lord it's all under the headship of christ his sovereignty so there's the individual there's the family there's also the church we saw in colossians 1 verse 18 that christ is the head of the church revelation 1 verse 5 again it says that as well we see here the one who has authority over the church. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's been given, uh, give, has given a limited authority for the elders to shepherd the flock according to the word of God. But the, the elders don't have this unlimited authority. It's this authority that's been delegated to them from God. And so we see here the head is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Caesar these are the things that are gods and and as baptists we've always known this that there are things that are caesars and things that are gods we've recognized this concept of separation between church and state that the church is separate from the state and so we see here that that it's not the state or caesar's jurisdiction they haven't been given authority from god to delegate the worship and the life of the church that's from Christ. That's Christ who has the authority and he's given this limited authority to elders, to shepherd according to the word of God. And so we see by application, Caesar doesn't dictate what the church is. He doesn't dictate what the church does, who can come to the church when they come. Christ who is the head dictates that. So we have the family, we have the individual, we have the church. And then we have the state. And we've seen earlier in our text, they've been given this limited authority, primary function. In Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. In our text, Mark 12. For tax purposes, for punishing evil and rewarding that which is good. They've been given this sphere, all these spheres. They operate within their God-given jurisdiction. And we see... What happens is if one sphere operates outside of their God-given jurisdiction, trouble happens. We see that again and again, that God has given certain spheres this limited authority to operate in for his glory, for his namesake, for his purposes. So let's go one step further and apply each sphere and see what should take place and ask some questions. Now, What happens if Caesar, from our text in chapter 12, verse 17 of Mark's gospel, what happens if if Caesar or the state reaches outside this God-given jurisdiction? Jesus says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's. Well, what what if Caesar goes over and reaches over into the things that are God's? How do we react? How do we respond? Let's think first. What if Caesar or the state goes after the individual, the one who's accountable to God, the one who has Jesus Christ as the Lord of the conscience? What happens if the state wants to have your full allegiance? What if they said you cannot pray, you cannot think that, you actually have to think this truth and you have to live it out, or, or you have to do this against your conscience, or you can't go to that place or that? Is that is that the things that are Caesar's? No, it's not. That's the things that are God's. That's not their jurisdiction. You would say that Caesar doesn't have authority over the conscience. Let's go another step. Number two, what if, what if the state wants to govern the family? They don't go after the individual this week. Next week, they're going after the family. Now, in some countries, in China they say that you can only have one child or two children. They're going after the family, and that's not their jurisdiction. But what if one day they say, well, you can only have a one child policy, or you have to teach your children about the LGBT agenda, or all those things, and that has to be the primary teaching in your home, or we're bringing you to prison, or what if this curriculum had to take place, or what if we had to Give your son or daughter a gender assignment. We're going to dictate this or that. Is, 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 that, is that Caesar's jurisdiction? Is, is that their place of authority? No, it's, it's not their jurisdiction. So we can see how these things play out and how it's helpful to have this framework. What is Caesar's and what is God's? God is the one who's made us in his image. God is the one who's assigned gender, male and female. We've been created in the image of God. Let's think of the church. Now, we could take this in two ways. What if the elders of the church went into your home and they said, well, I want all of you to paint your house blue or green or purple? Would that be their jurisdiction to govern in that way within your home? Well, you would say that's absolutely foolish because they've been given this limited authority from Christ to rule according to the Word of God in the context of the local church. So it wouldn't even be their jurisdiction to say, everyone in this church, they have to paint their house blue in order to be a member here. That's not their authority to dictate that. That's not their jurisdiction. Uh, What happens if the church, the state or the state dictates who can come and who cannot come for corporate worship Uh, we're seeing right now even in our time that society is splitting into two we're seeing that even with vaccinations there's the vaxxed and the non-vaxxed and the state is really splitting people into two categories either you're vaccinated or not vaccinated and and we're seeing that the vaccinated they can go to different places but the unvaccinated can't now think of this and and we have to pray that god would have mercy and not allow this to take place but you see the direction in the writing on the wall what if the state comes and says that only the vaccinated can come for corporate worship only the vaccinated can gather physically and worship or go to these religious gatherings is that their jurisdiction no that's god's that's god's not caesar's so we have to think of it this way we We know that the state doesn't determine who can come for worship or how we worship, but it's Christ that determines that. We see again and again, Paul says it's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or barbarian. All are one in Christ. We see that there's this indiscriminate offer to all. All have the gospel freely presented to them. All have the the means of grace freely distributed to them. And so what if in our day, what if in the next month, the state comes and says, well, you know what? Everyone needs to have this vaccine passport to come to church. Well, do you remember the Galatian church? What happened there? They said that in order to have fellowship in the gospel, you must be circumcised before you come and and take benefits of the gospel and partake of the means of grace and to have fellowship. And what did Paul say? he said that's another gospel if you have circumcision as a requirement to partake of the gospel and to partake of the means of grace then that's a gospel that is different that's that's a a gospel that a message that sends you to hell and damns you Uh, the gospel is christ alone offered to all freely and so we need to understand this if that comes our way, we must utterly reject that because we have no authority, the elders of a church have no authority to limit it to that. We see again and again the testimony of Scripture is that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter your economic status, doesn't matter your social status, it doesn't matter your medical status. Scripture offers the gospel and the means of grace to all freely, and so we need to understand these various spheres. What is God delegated to them? What's their authority? What is their bounds and limits? And how do they serve the living God? Principles we need to carry now as we conclude here. We hear of these spheres. We understand that it's all ultimately under the Lord Jesus Christ. We think of this practically. What, what principles then can we carry now that we've been equipped with these. Tools in this framework of thinking, two things we we need to understand this. Number one, our first and primary loyalty must always be to King Jesus. That's that's the focus and bent of all Scripture. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. There, there's a purpose there. Submit to him as he he lives. They live out their God given function and operate in their God given jurisdiction. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but. But above all that, before anything else, first and foremost, your loyalty is always to King Jesus. Glenn Sunshine, again, a very helpful quote, says, Christians obey the laws of the state insofar as they do not conflict with the laws of their king. The Christians would rather die than be disloyal to their true sovereign Lord. He says the state has legitimate God-given authority. We want to understand that. We want to honor that. God, out of his mercy and grace, has appointed the state for good purposes, to punish evil, to reward good. We praise God that there's a system in our land to do that. The state has legitimate God-given authority. But, sunshine says, and that's a wonderful name, Mr. Sunshine, but the state has legitimate God-given authority, but not ahead of Christ or over the Christian conscience. And Another commentator, William Hendrickson, he says the emperor, Caesar, to be sure, should be respected and obeyed whenever his will does not clash with the divine will. And so we always want to be uh, realizing that, that Caesar, the state, must be respected and obeyed whenever his will does not clash with the divine will. And then he says, see Romans 13. And then he says, but when there is a clash... The rule laid down in Acts 5, verse 29, must be followed. We must obey God rather than men. So we realize that above anything else, whatever the cost, we obey God rather than men. Our primary allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first principle. Now secondly, we also need to understand this principle. Wisdom, prayer must be exercised in this life as we seek to live this out. We ask, when is it permissible for Acts 5, verse 29, to obey God rather than men to disobey an earthly authority and obedience to Christ? When is it permissible? We need to understand that there needs to be a warning here. Wisdom, prayer, patience. We don't approach an issue because of our own pet peeves. We want to guard ourselves from that. Not just because someone bugs me and I don't like things that way. We want to be aware of that. Not even because of our political preferences it can be easy to be to be frustrated and we see the things of of politics just downward spiraling but we don't want to just allow that to drive us but we want it to be a primary concern that in all of life i live for the glory of god and whatever i face i live for him before anything else We want that to be the drive. We want to approach things on our knees in prayer with the scriptures informing our mind and our conscience. We don't want to go forward into things without without our mind informed and our conscience united and guarded and governed by the word of God. And we also want to have counsel and wisdom from others. So that's the warning. We need wisdom. We need prayer. We need We need God's help from God's Word to govern everything we do, and we want to be Bereans. We we follow the Word of God, and if the Word of God says that, then we follow. If it says do not do that, then we don't follow. We want our conscience informed by the Word of God and the Word of God alone. So you say, well, when is it? When is it permissible? I would argue that Scripture gives us three ways in which it's permissible to disobey an earthly authority, whether it's a husband telling his wife to do something or it's the state telling the church or or whatever when one sphere tries to exercise authority over the other one outside of their god-given jurisdiction when is it permissible to disobey an earthly authority in obedience to christ and i'll say three things very quickly as we conclude when number one an authority forbids what god commands so we see in scripture our conscience you have the scriptures open god has commanded me to do this and we say if if one authority if the, if the husband says that you cannot worship christ you cannot go to the to the assembly of the people of god and worship him well well you can disobey him you don't have to submit there if the state says that you cannot worship christ you can you can't have this kind of people group there you can only have this particular person that's that shows us from the scriptures that that's enough for us to say, well, God has commanded indiscriminately a people from all tribes and tongues and nations, whatever status, to worship Him. And so God commands that. And so if they give us this dictate that we must forbid what God commands, that's, that's where we can rightfully before God and before the Lord disobey an earthly authority. Number two, if the earthly authority commands what God forbids, that's when we can disobey an earthly authority. They command you to do this. It's against the Word of God. Well, you have a right to disobey then under the authority of Christ. And then thirdly, an earthly authority commands what is not theirs to command. We don't think of that third category. We know about the category if they forbid what God commands or if they command what God forbids. But this third category, we have the right to disobey an earthly authority when the earthly authority commands what is not theirs to command. And I'll conclude with this example from, from church history with the Puritans. The Church of England, they, they were Calvinistic at that time, but, but the state, the Church of England said to the Puritans, that you have to use the book of common prayer for your worship services. And so you have the, the state, you have Caesar saying that you must use this book. Now, this book, it wasn't heretical. If you pick it up, it was, it was very theologically accurate. There was reformed Calvinistic doctrine in it. So it wasn't, it wasn't like they were uh, telling them that they have to do something what God forbids or denying what, what God commands. It wasn't, it wasn't in that category. But they were saying that your worship must conform to this pattern. You have to bring this book into your worship. And the Puritans, many of them, they understood that that wasn't wasn't the state's jurisdiction to determine how we worship the Lord. And that's not their, their jurisdiction to command something what is not theirs to command. And so what happened? Well, many of the Puritans that didn't adopt this book that the state wanted them to use, they were booted out of their church and they were denied access and people were scattered in the forest and so we see that principle as well in scripture and in church history that if an earthly authority commands what is not theirs to command we we seek god but we pray to the lord for wisdom that we would be obedient to him above all things jesus says render to caesar the things that are caesar's and to god the things that are god's we have this framework It's a foolish thing to put Jesus Christ to the test. We have these principles to carry. Now the hard work is for us to dive deep into the word and pray to the Lord that he would guide us and he would give us boldness and grace to follow the Lord according to our conscience, knowing that he alone is Lord of the conscience. May God help us in the days to come. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this framework that you've given us in your word. We do pray, Lord, as robust as it may seem and complex, Lord, and often we don't know how to discern things. We do rely completely upon you as your people, Lord. We we long, Father, to live for you and go forward with the right posture, with the right heart attitude, with the right gaze for your glory and for your Gospel to shine forth and we do pray Lord uh, in all spheres of our life whether individually whether in the home or the church or even in relation to the state we do pray Lord that we would honor you in all things we pray Father that you would give us wisdom to help us to interact in all these spheres of life and we pray Lord that you would be glorified by our Christ-like behavior in this world all for your namesake We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Now to conclude, I believe we will be singing from Trinity Praise number 62. I heard an old, old story. Number 62 in Trinity Praise.